Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, April 12, and in this episode, Jan Franz secured an interview with Australian superstar comedian Hannah Gadsby. I don't think I've ever thought, yeah, I'm a baller. I think I might try to. That sounds fun. Mostly it's like, are we sure? (laughs) And then I have a cup of tea. So she's going to talk about her very unusual journey to fame, growing up in Tasmania, and her experience of autism. It's the first part of a two-part conversation with Hannah Gadsby and Jan Fran up right after the headlines. First, Katrina Blouse joins me for today's headlines. An awkward start for Labor leader Anthony Albanese on the campaign trail yesterday when asked if he knew what the current unemployment rate was. National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4, sorry. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, so if that wasn't awkward enough, then he also struggled to remember the Reserve Bank's cash rate. Oh, look, we, we can do the old, uh, old Q&A stuff over 50 different, over, over 50, 50 different figures. Oh, dear. He then later offered a bit of a pointed mea culpa. Earlier today, I made a mistake. I'm human. But when I make a mistake, I'll fess up to it and I'll set about correcting that mistake. I won't blame someone else. I'll accept responsibility. That's what leaders do. Oh, wow. This was an absolute shocker for Anthony Albanese. He can try and put it on Scott Morrison there, but it won't work. The way I see this election is that Labor's biggest challenge is countering the perception that the coalition are better economic managers. The biggest election issue is the economy and cost of living. So they need to be able to push back on that perception. These are two of the most important metrics in our economy, you need to not just be able to recall them, but truly know them and know what they mean. I would agree with that. Although I would also say that somebody's ability to regurgitate facts and figures does not make them a great leader or a poor leader. John Howard actually came to Anthony Albanese's defence last night. He was like, who cares? I don't even know what that rate is. But then again, he's not running for prime minister at the moment. Well, John Howard got the cash rate wrong in 2007. And he got voted out that year. (laughs) That is true. Uh, Here's what Prime Minister Scott Morrison had to say about the opposition leader's gaffe. 0.1% is the cash rate. It's been there for some time. In addition to that, the unemployment rate, I'm happy to tell you, was 4% and is falling to a 50-year low. Just loving it, wasn't he? (laughs) Oh, God. It's a really key point, as you said, Tom, for uh, the LNP to seize upon. And uh, they'll be looking to make the most of it again today. And the Prime Minister's got his own issues to face, of course, uh, with more questions expected on the role of Minister Alan Tudge. So Morrison asked Alan Tudge to stand aside as Education Minister back in December after Tudge's former staffer, Rochelle Miller, claimed she'd been in a relationship with him and claimed he'd been emotionally abusive and on one occasion physically abusive. Now, Tudge denies the claims, but it was revealed on news.com yesterday the government's going to pay Miss Miller over half a million dollars of compensation. Yeah, then we also learned from Morrison yesterday that Tudge is still technically in his cabinet and that he'll be minister again, should he wish, after the election. Yeah, Carl Stefanovic um, kind of nailed this point in a question to the Prime Minister yesterday on Today. If he didn't do anything wrong, though, and what's the money for? If he did, why is he still a cabinet minister? I have no knowledge of that. That's a, a private matter between her and the department. And uh, and so that is not a matter that I have any involvement in or, or have any oversight or, or visibility on. Mm, basically couldn't answer the question. Um, so 
Must note here that an inquiry found insufficient evidence that Tudge breached ministerial standards, although Rochelle Miller did not participate in that inquiry. A teenager has died after being stabbed in the chest at Sydney's Royal Easter Show last night. Bystanders posting video of the attack to social media, showing a group of people fighting in the carnival ride section of the show. Paramedics performed CPR on the 17-year-old in front of other showgoers, but he was pronounced dead on arrival at hospital. Um, Another victim, believed to be 16, remains in hospital with a stab wound to the leg and a man is in custody over the incident. French President Emmanuel Macron will face off against far-right candidate Marine Le Pen in a presidential election later this month. So the pair have emerged as the top choices in the first round of the French presidential election at the weekend. Macron got 27% of the vote ahead of Le Pen's 23%. Let's not be fooled. Nothing is decided yet. The debate that we will have in the weeks to come is key for our country and for Europe. So that was Macron. Uh, Here is Marine Le Pen. Your vote depends all over the French territory on the legitimate preponderance of the French culture and language, the customs of our regions and the French way of life. So Le Pen's previously called for all immigrants to speak French and for banning the burqa in public. Um, She's also been forced to defend her links with Vladimir Putin. She's been photographed with him and her party borrowed money from Russian banks to fund a previous campaign. Uh, The French election will be on April 24, um, a few weeks before ours. And Elon Musk has decided not to join the board of Twitter. He was offered the spot after becoming the social media giant's largest shareholder last week. And he initially said he would be taking up that offer. And now he's changed his mind, um, announcing overnight that he wouldn't. He talked about bringing significant improvements to the company, but he won't be doing that via the board. It's a $4 billion stake he took in the company, giving him 9%. And (laughs) announcing that he wouldn't take up the board position... Seems very awkward for Twitter CEO Parag <laughs> Agrawal. It certainly does. Uh, so I think what's happened here, Tom, just mm. reading between the lines, is he, because he has such a giant stake in the company, he had to file a disclosure of that shareholding mm. to the Securities and Exchange Commission. And initially he said that he'd be a passive investor and then he changed that to say, I'm going to be an active investor. And he put in this amendment that he may express his views about the company through social media and since then has tweeted tons of stuff. And I think what people are speculating is that the Twitter board members are like, "Mm, we'd prefer you to stay passive, thanks. And so given that uh, he does quite like being very public with his views, he's decided to stay off the board entirely. So do you think going onto the board would have come with the condition that he wouldn't be tweeting about the company? Well, that's, I guess, what you can look at between the lines. But I reckon he makes some pretty good points about Twitter. He recently posted that the 10 most popular Twitter users, including Barack Obama and Justin Bieber, very rarely tweet. So is the platform even relevant? He also made some really good points about the role of advertising. He reckons ads should be banned on Twitter because that gives giant corporations too much power. And it is true that Twitter gets 90% of its revenue from advertising. Well, he has such a loud voice that he can make changes um, to the company just by making public comments without... (laughs) going through the arduous board meetings and potentially restrictive (laughs) conditions that come with joining the board. All right, we're out of here. Jan Fran is about to talk to Hannah Gadsby.
Hi, it's Jan here. Hannah Gatsby's show, Nanette, was unlike any comedy special I've seen. It's raw, it's angry, it's like you're witnessing a person on stage reckoning with themselves in real time, which I know it doesn't sound like comedy, but it's funny. So when Hannah Gatsby announced that she was quitting comedy after Nanette, I thought, no, don't do that. Luckily, that did not happen because the show was more successful than she or anyone could have imagined. But now she can add author to her long list of accomplishments since. Her new book is called 10 Steps to Nanette. And she joins me now. Hannah, thank you so much for chatting with me on The Briefing. It's a real treat having you here. I have been stalking you online and I just realised your book is a New York Times bestseller. How does that feel? I know. What a trip. I I can't quite process that because it just sounds like official now, doesn't it? I'm in the big kids group. (laughs) <laughs> Is this what it takes? Hannah Gatsby, New York Times bestselling author. I don't know. It just ha- doesn't have a ring to it. I think it has a great ring to it. When you find these things out, is your reaction surprise or are you like, yes, I'm a baller. I'm a bestselling author. Yeah, no, I don't think I've ever thought, yeah, I'm a baller. I think I might try to. That sounds fun. So mostly it's like, are we sure? <laughs> And then it's like, okay. And then, you know, and then I have a cup of tea. Congrats on the book. It's a lovely read. I'm not surprised that it's on the New York Times bestseller list. It's poignant. It's funny. Why did you decide to write it? Let's start there. What was the kind of impetus for you in deciding, you know what, I kind of want to document this in paper form? I guess best described as a mistake. (laughs) That's a hard thing to do. (laughs) The book deal was... uh, I've been writing this book for over a decade. Originally, it was going to be a book about, uh, you know, some fun little anecdotes about me and all my accidents and this little funny essay book. Um, And through the course of writing that, I began to examine my life more closely and also worked out that I couldn't quite piece it together sensibly. And through that process is what kind of pushed me into writing Nanette. You know, I looked at these really traumatic things and like, well, they play a large part in my life and in order to be funny, I either edit them or don't talk about them at all and I felt like that's a disingenuous kind of idea of self. So, you know, that's what pushed me to write Nanette and, of course, then after Nanette went off because I'm a baller. <laughs> uh, hey, there you go. You see, it works. You can do it. You can use the word, Hannah. <laughs> I winced. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, then, of course, the book had to address that, I felt like, and so it became about that. And I am pleased I documented the process because what goes on stage is like the tip of the iceberg of a creative process. You write a lot about your family, in this book, we should say from the offset for anybody that hasn't watched your shows, first of all, just absolutely go and watch them. But it's it's very candid. They're very personal. Um, and, and and this book is the same. You know, you, you write a lot about your family. They're not shy to give you feedback, especially your mother. What's their reaction been to your book? They're often the harshest critics, I find. Yeah, pretty good. Um, I'm very close with my family. Um, My mum's reading the book as we speak, so the jury's still out on that. Um, It's a a lot for her to process and 
you know, she doesn't have to like it. I did my best to do her justice in it. Mm. I feel very um, protective of her, you know, in, you know, the telling of my story because she is such a great person, but she's complex and I wanted to, you know, and our relationship is is complex. She's doing all right. She's proud of it and everyone else. I don't know if dad's dad, I don't think dad will read it. He's, you know, <laughs> he'll just, you know, re- he does, like that's how he consumes the word. He'll read other people's reviews and go, oh, yeah, I'll get the, yeah, I'll get the gist of it. <laughs> <laughs> I've read the blurb. No, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've met her. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you talk a lot about growing up in Tassie as well and um, feeling, I guess, a little bit on the outside or feeling a little bit different. Can you describe to us what that feeling is? Uh, you know, it was Tasmania comes with a sense of isolation, you know, which is a blessing and a curse. And particularly in the 80s and 90s, pre-internet, it was even more remote. And, of course, getting to the mainland was an expensive exercise most of us couldn't afford. So the the isolation was of its time, like it's no longer as isolated, I think. I always sort of grew up thinking that perhaps I would, you know, you always read those stories where people leave their small towns and find their people elsewhere. And I didn't really do that quite so successfully. So there's two strands to my isolation. The first one being, you know, growing up queer in a homophobic place. And then the other one growing up and, you know, having undiagnosed autism, which, you know, famously not great for (laughs) developing connections. So much of the book is sort of dealing with sort of trying to overcome, you know, the internalised homophobia and shame and then also manually trying to find a way to connect to the world. Mm. When you got your autism diagnosis, which was a, a lot later in life and you went for many years without knowing that you had autism, what was that moment like finding out for you? Was there a a sense of relief or were you angry it hadn't happened earlier? No, I was never angry. You know, I'm a fairly pragmatic individual, but there was relief and grief. Like it was definitely a grief for, you know, had I known, you know, how to navigate life a bit better, I I might not have struggled so much, Mm. would have still struggled. But, you know, just in terms of my interpersonal relationships, you know, I was functioning on this assumption that I was, could just connect, you know, be like everyone else and do the same things and enjoy life in the same way that everyone else seemed to. And I just can't, like, I I just don't at all socialise anymore. I mean, I talk to people and, you know, but not in this, you know, I was putting myself into situations that were quite frankly traumatic to the outside world. They'd be like, oh, that's just life, you know. You know, everyone goes to parties. Mm. So I'd find myself in these places and, and have a diminishing return on life. So, you know, much of it was relief because I could learn how to navigate and protect myself and live life that makes me happy instead of living a life that, the world tells me should make me happy. The grief was for, you know, the quality of life I felt like I lost. But, you know, I'm over the grief. You've got to move on. Keep moving like a shark. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how does that reconcile with, you know, your your life as an extremely successful and extremely well-known international comedian? I suspect that you would get a baller, if you will. Yeah, we've established (laughs) this. It's not always conducive. 
after being diagnosed, it became quite clear that I actually need accommodations. And that was a very difficult thing. And it remains a difficult thing for me to accept because on, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, that just feels like I'm being a princess. But if I don't, you know, I'm highly sensitive. So, you know, not just in like, I'm an empath, mm-hmm. <laughs> fluorescent lights irritate me to the point of distress, you know, so being a comedian, it means you put into a lot of environments that are not great. And so the constant cycle of it would mean, you know, before my diagnosis, you know, every year I'd probably spend two or three months unwell. Right. Every festival was always followed by a period of time where I couldn't communicate or be a functioning human. And then after that, it's like playing catch up on life. With successes meant that I'm busier, but I can also afford accommodations, you know, and give myself, plan my life a little bit better so that I'm not distressed as much. Mm. You talk about reactions to Nanette in your book. You say that there's a lot of comedians that, this is quoting, hate you and your work, a lot of US comedians. But you also say that it was sort of the Aussie scene that made you and that was where you honed your craft and kind of became who you are as a comedian. What what did you learn from the Australian comedy scene? Well, I, I think, you know, the festival circuit in particular because you're able to develop your craft you know, with your own audience, if, you, if you're lucky enough. The club scene requires a lot of networking that I'm not particularly great at. Festivals usually open, so anyone can put on a show. So that sort of probably gave me an opening into a comedy world that perhaps wouldn't have been available to me in, in other places. You see other people as well evolve year after year, you know. I cut my teeth. I grew, I grew up comedically wise with uh, Celia Pacola and Anne Edmonds and Geraldine Hickey and Kate McLennan, and they're all like, look what they're doing. They're doing incredible stuff. And I feel like that's the blessing of it. That's what it is. It's like you find, you know, every year, we're, you know, we'll write these shows and really craft hours, which is a very different thing than getting up and stacking jokes for 15 minutes against a drunk crowd. That was comedian, performer, presenter, best-selling author, all-round baller, Hannah Gatsby. There, that was the first part of our chat. The second part is going to be streaming tomorrow. Hope to catch you there. Listener.